Running the option on first down. Hagan has it. He has Rome. He's got one man to beat. Now he pitches to Flanagan, and he may take it all the way. Flanagan's in for the touchdown. McKinley Wright from the logo. Got it. Oh, McKinley Wright. Welcome into the DMVR Buffs podcast presented by the American Raptors. I'm Henry Chisholm, and today is a really busy day. And because of that, we're going off schedule. And um, you know what? Here's why. So four practices a week in spring ball, right? This is the final week of spring ball. Spring game on Saturday. Definitely go to that. It's going to be a great time. We'll be live after, by the way. Today, decided to change things up for a couple reasons. Um, Instead of doing today's podcast tonight... After I get back from Boulder, uh, which is where the practice is, where we're going to hear from the offensive coordinator, Mike Samford, the defensive coordinator, Chris Wilson, instead of doing that podcast tonight, we are going to do that podcast tomorrow. And we're doing that for a couple of reasons. Um, the The first reason, and honestly the biggest reason, is that the Nuggets have a game at 8 tonight. And it's a playoff game. And I, I have two options. One is I can go up to Boulder, do my work, head back down straight to the bar and uh, watch the Nuggets game at the bar and have a good time. So that's option one. Option two is I go up to Boulder, come back from Boulder, come back home, do the podcast, cut up all the audio, do all that sort of stuff, and um, turn on the Nuggets game. Except the thing is that that Nuggets game is on. I know this about myself. I will be watching the Nuggets playoff game. So decided to tweak the schedule a little bit. And instead of doing a podcast tonight, I'm actually just going to cut all that audio up tomorrow morning and uh, that'll be up tomorrow, so be on the lookout for that for sure. Um, sounds a lot better than staying up until midnight doing it, if I'm being honest. The other reason why we're doing that podcast tomorrow and this podcast right now is because there are a lot of things not related to those coordinators that I want to talk about today. Um, the, the easy one is that there's there's a bunch of new commits uh, a couple new football players who we know will be joining the roster. I mean, three, three that we haven't talked about yet. Um, so we got to get through all that. But also, The Athletic put out a story um, about Colorado. And this was kind of like one of their one of their marquee pieces of the day. Um, it's written by Stuart Mandel, who I believe is the, the top college football writer at The Athletic. Um, if not, he's in that top three. Like, Nicole Auerbach might be, I don't know. Um, but it's called... How did the Colorado Buffaloes decline from NFL pipeline to Pac-12 cellar dweller? And it's, uh, it's kind of been all the rage on the internet today. And so I, I have a bunch of thoughts uh, related to that that I want to get out today. Um, and so because of that, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about these new commits. Um, and I don't want to do those two things and then also try to cut up all the audio because then we wind up cutting things short from Mike and Chris and that's probably still the most notable. Um, so that's that's kind of the plan for the start of the week. So today, 
I'll, I'll obviously have this podcast, which you are currently listening to. Tomorrow, you'll get to hear from Mike Sanford and Chris Wilson. Uh, Wednesday is... Oh, Wednesday, I'll hear from Carl Durrell. And I also have to pick two people who I need to talk to, two football players to talk to on Wednesday. And right now, I don't... I haven't decided yet. I do I do want to talk to Dion this week because um, this is kind of a big week for him. You know, he, he gets to... to probably be the number one back in the spring game and that's a big opportunity and I'm sure he's excited about it so um hopefully him maybe on Wednesday if not later in the week we'll see uh that's coming on Wednesday though you'll get to hear those conversations and what's up with Carl Thursday there'll be no podcast uh Friday we will be doing the uh the the final media availability before camp and so I'll get to talk to two more players there'll be a podcast up Friday night with whoever those two are I've got picked four for this week I'm doesn't matter um and then Saturday will be live from the DMVR bar after the spring game so that'll be obviously a big one um kind of recapping the spring but also kind of digging deep into that game uh, with RK so that should be a good time for sure um, so there's there's your plan for the week. Um, one one more note. So Saturday's podcast. Uh, first of all, I think it was a pretty good one, but I did make a little mistake, and the mistake was so I was downloading the the audio because I upload somewhere to get transcriptions on it. So I downloaded it on my computer, and when I downloaded it, I I saved the Naim Rodman audio as uh, Frank Phillip, and then I actually didn't title the other one because I knew there was two, and if one is and I am the other one. So, but yeah, the point is, if you listen to that podcast, I wound up flipping that audio in the final version of it, and uh, I know that it confused at least uh, a handful, or near nearly a dozen of you. Um, and I know that because you all reached out and told me that I screwed it up, which I really, really appreciate. Um, if I do mess something up, please let me know so I can fix it. So, if you listen to that podcast in like the first eighteen hours or whatever that it was up, then you uh, you were probably very confused by the voices you were hearing. Um, if you downloaded it after that, then you probably have no idea what I'm talking about right now because you got the fixed version. Um, so that's what was up for that. with that. Um, again, appreciate all of you for reaching out. It is one of those things where it's like, you, you never really know how many people are listening. Well, I guess you could because I get the reports of how many downloads and where they're coming from and all that. But um until you screw something up, and people are pretty quick to be like, hey, you said this. I'm not sure, which, again, I appreciate that because now I knew to get it fixed. And uh, there we go. I think that's it for all the notes. Um, here's one more fun fact before we dig in. I actually recorded this podcast already, and it was, well, not all of it. I got through like the first hour or so, and it was just me rambling about this Colorado story. And I was like, ah, you you learned a lot of things about your thoughts while talking. And there were a lot of ums and other things. And you can really probably cut this down into something quicker. So this is this is take two of my thoughts on uh, the, the athletic story. And uh, they, should, they should come out a little bit smoother. Uh, so we're going to dig into that. Like I said, there's a couple more commitments. We're going to talk about those in the second half of today's show. And now that we're seven minutes in, we get to actually start talking about what we're here today to talk about. Um, and that is, how did the Colorado Buffaloes decline from NFL pipeline to Pac-12 cellar dweller? So at this point in the podcast, I feel like I should say, if you have a subscription to The Athletic, 
you might as well go read this if you haven't already. Again, based on what I've seen on the internet today, I think most people have read this if they have access, um, but it might just frame things a little bit better if you can read it. If not, um, you can kind of imagine how it goes, right? It's uh, It takes probably 15 minutes or so to read. It's basically kind of a history from, honestly, it includes stuff going back into the early to mid 80s and all the way through the present day the coaching changes athletic director changes um going from the the big 12 to the pac 12 um all of those sorts of things so again you you have a general idea of the story um it starts with this i mean midway through the 1998 football season the list of college programs with the most active players in the nfl looked like this one notre dame two florida state three colorado um, goes through naming all of the different uh, players who were there, how good they were, you know, finishing the top 20 every year from 1989 to 96. Um, they're in the top 10 in five of those eight seasons, won the national championship. Very, very good football team. Very, very good football team. Since then, things haven't gone so well. A bunch of interviews in there from, from Alfred Williams, uh, from Rick Neuheisel and Gary Barnett, um, Ryan Miller, the tackle, the last second to last five star that the Buffs brought in, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, here's here's one quote from Gary Barnett, and we're not going to like go through this line by line because it just for for a bunch of reasons. Um, but again, you can imagine what it says. Uh, I knew what a struggle Colorado is," said Gary Barnett, the last head coach to win a conference championship in 2001, and now Colorado's radio color analyst. When new coaches have come in, and there have been a lot of them, they did not have an appreciation of the complexity of the job. It has probably looked like something that it isn't really. Um, so there we go. They were flashback. They were really good. Uh, talking about the national championship, um, the kind of Bill McCartney's approach to all sorts of different things, to recruiting and all of that sort of stuff. Um, different legal things that happened while McCartney was there. Um, do, 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 do. Yeah, New Heisel comes in um, after McCartney retired. Um, did well initially, kind of struggled a little bit later on, but then gets gets poached by um, Washington. That's right, by Washington, and they offer him a lot of money. Um, from there, you go through the the Gary Barnett era. Which again, what he was seven and five, then three and eight, then ten and three, then nine and five, five and seven, eight and five, seven and five. You look at that now and say, solid, solid stretch for a CU head coach. At the time, obviously, the standards are higher. I mean, he got fired after back-to-back seasons where he went eight and five and then seven and five and was fired before the bowl game, which they lost. Um, today, do you get fired after that? Probably not. Um, Again, scandals after that. Some of the some of the sorts of sanctions and things that the Buffs had to go through. Um, do, 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 uh, bringing in Mike Bone as the AD. Kind of interesting that Mike Bone. I think he hired Hawkins first of all, um, and then then definitely hired Embry, and then hired Mike McIntyre, which is kind of a weird thing, right? Because he was fired pretty quickly after he hired Mike McIntyre. Um, obviously, the Hawkins hire was. In my opinion, probably the, the the turning point, right? Where it's like you're you're slipping, you're slipping, you're slipping, but still you you slip a little bit, and you're still like a relevant college football program because you were up so high on the perch. Um, 
then you the bottom kind of falls out under Dan Hawkins. Um, and it's, you know, we've had flashes since. Like, Embry doesn't last long. McIntyre struggles early on with some bad teams, teams that were probably not his fault that they were so bad because he came in after Hawkins, then two years of Embry. Um, has the 10-4 and four season, and then back-to-back uh, -back five win season gets him fired. Um, Mel Tucker, all of that. Uh, and then Carl is 8-10 and 10 as Colorado's head coach. Um, let's see, is there anything else in the story? Not really. I mean, pack, the, the move to the Pac-12 is an interesting one. We'll dig into that. But, I mean, there's, there's kind of the bigger picture of what's going on and all of that sort of stuff. And now we can actually dig in. Um, and, again, like it's... It's the story of CU football, right? And and to me personally, like as I read through this, again, I didn't live this. I I took this job in the summer of 2019, and that was my introduction to CU football. Like I'd watched the Rocky Mountain Showdown a couple times growing up. Um, I'd I think I watched the bowl game, the Alma Bowl, um, in 2016. Um, I I think I actually I watched that Oregon State game, um, when the Buffs were really hot. Um, in 27, just cause I grew up like a Denver sports fan and my dad actually went to CSU. So I wasn't like a CU guy, but they're sitting there at five and zero coming off the season they had. It got me to turn it on as somebody who's like a casual college or Colorado sports fan or somebody who's a Denver sports fan, but doesn't really care for CU, but I am a Colorado sports fan. So it's like, Oh yeah, the buffs, they're five and zero. they're coming off a good season They're They have a chance to, to go six and zero. I watched that one and then, uh, didn't watch another game until I got this job. Uh, so that's, again, my kind of background. At the same time, though, obviously you read up on everything. You learn the whole history. You watch the YouTube videos. You read the stories. You go back through the clippings. Um, on top of that, you know, you spend every day with Brian Howell, who lived this whole life, has covered the team for 15 years or whatever. He knows all about everything that happened. And so you hear about the Dan Hawkins stuff in the story, and you also know, like, all the stories you heard from Dan Hawkins from Brian or from Mark Johnson or from... Uh, you know, the handful of people who I've heard about Dan Hawkins from who work work for CU. Um, outside of Mark Johnson, I guess it's that guy. And, you know, Ryan is a big Buffs fan, so I hear from Ryan about all this. So, again, this to me was kind of interesting to see what the key points were from an outside perspective, right? Because everybody puts kind of different emphasis on things. There's things that stand out. But just to see how this whole thing is kind of structured, this big picture, here's what the last 40 years have looked like. It's like, oh, yeah, like I... I could have told you the history, but to have the, the things highlighted that are highlighted there for the reasons, um, again, this is kind of beside the point, but just setting the stage for some more of my in-depth thoughts. And, you know, the big one is the big new revolutionary thought, the change in my opinion that happened after going through this whole process is my perception of the Pac-12 and Colorado and the finances and all of that. Because it, it is true that the Pac-12 has a bad deal and they aren't maximizing their value and all those sorts of things. But to me, I think that, first of all, me personally and probably a bunch of others have kind of looked at it as like, yeah, the Pac-12 is screwing over Colorado. And in some ways, there's there's definitely some elements of that. At the same time, though, it's on the Pac-12 to... to or on Colorado, to build its own value, right? Like, you need to give your... to build a product that is valuable. 
because you know because you're selling shirts and you're 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 giving CBS a reason to pay a lot of money to be able to broadcast your games or your or Fox or whoever, and and that is the value that you're building. And I think that there's a lot of kind of this the the, the conversation that you often hear. And again, I'm a part of this. Is you know Colorado really screwed up going from the Big Twelve to the Pac Twelve? It was such a dumb idea, and they they made a big mistake, and it's kind of been a curse. And it's like, yeah, it was a mistake. They'd be in better shape if they were in the Big Twelve. But again, there is kind of this, the, the approach to that conversation a lot of the times is this feeling that you're kind of like riding the coattails of the, of the conference, right? It's like, yeah, you know, you had Texas and Oklahoma down there. Now you have what, USC and Oregon? And again, that is true. But it's also true that Colorado needs to build its own value. You know, the idea that, well, the Pac-12 is bad. You are the Pac-12. If Colorado goes out there and wins 10 games a year, guess what? The Pac-12 is a good conference. Some somebody needs to step. There's a bunch of different ways it can happen, and, and the idea that well, you know, USC's bad, so it kind of screws Colorado. There's this. It's it's almost kind of little brothery in a way, where you're not taking the reins and saying like Colorado, we need to turn Colorado into a product. You know, not oh, the Pac-12 needs to get a better product on the field. It's Colorado needs to play games that Fox wants to broadcast, that ESPN wants to broadcast. And again, there's the Pac-12 is or was run poorly, and it might still be now. It's tough to say with the changes in leadership, and there's a bunch of things that they're doing that I think are good ideas, um, but it's going to be a project to fix things, and it's going to be a difficult pro- project, and we'll see if the leadership actually is capable of achieving those things. But the truth is, you know, you talk about the bad TV deal that happened in 2011 or 2012 or whatever that was, and yeah, it was a bad TV deal. But the difference between a bad deal and a good deal is it's kind of like the the little multiplier at the end, the little bonus at the end, or the little loss at the end, where it's like, yeah, should Colorado be making $50 million a year instead of $35 million a year from the, from the TV money? Yep, they should. And that would be what happened if they made a good deal. And that $50 million absolutely matters. But building your program up so that we're saying, yeah, you should be making $60 million, $70 million, $80 million. You know, that, that's what really matters. You know, it's, it's building the program up to the point where this little 20% swing at the end is, it, it still matters, but that isn't the difference between what the SEC is doing and what the Pac-12 is doing, right? And to be more specific, you know, what an Ole Miss is doing versus what a Colorado is doing. You have to build that brand. You have to bring in the fan support. And, and there's a lot of factors to that. And to be honest... I do think that it all comes down to the fan base. You need to grow the fan base. You need to engage the fan base. You need to. We've talked about this idea before. That you kind of just level everybody up in their fandom. Um, that if you give good experiences, all of a sudden the guy who he turns on the TV and watches the the important games in November, if you're in it, you know, he, he, instead of just watching those, maybe he watches the games in October. Maybe he watches every game. Maybe he watches half the games before that instead of none. You know, those sorts of things. Where you can just level people up as fans in the same way you can level them down. You know, I was, I was at the bar for the Nuggets game on Saturday, and there was a, uh, a CU fan there, and we were talking about the different things. And one of the things that he brought up, and it's something you hear often, is, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to renew my tickets because of all the things, like, whatever. And, you know, it's, it's kind of that opposite effect. You know, where you're moving backwards. And, and instead of turning the guy who watches every single game into a guy who 
makes a trip out. You know, he flies out to, to L.A. for one of the L.A. games every year. Um, instead of doing that, you take the reverse step where instead of watching every game, he's like, ah, I might turn a couple off because I have better things to do on a Saturday. And that is the game that you are always playing, and that, at the end of the day, is where your value comes from, is how many people support your program, how do they do it, how intensely, and and sometimes just how much money can they offer? Because there's plenty of people who look at college football as, you know, kind of their life. And they're willing to say, guess what? I'm, I have a billion dollars. I'm willing to give a cut of that to, to my college football team every year to make sure that it's a good, whatever. Um, and again, the, we've talked about these other things too, where it's like, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to renew your season tickets because you have a bad time. They were four and two at home last year. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, I get like big picture. There were other things going on behind the scenes. You weren't necessarily showing up to the stadium expecting a win every time. But again, you you did. It was two to one with the win. So I guess four and three if you came down to the A and M game in Denver too. But it's been half a decade since the the Buffs have had a losing record at home. Um. So yeah, there's all that stuff. Again, like I don't want to say that they're bad fans and. I think that there just aren't enough, and I think the fans that the Buffs do have, you need to kind of level them up in that intensity. Again, like if you're listening to this podcast, you are not part of the problem, right? If if you're if you're tuning in to listen to somebody talk about CU every single day of the week, you are one of the intense fans who the the Buffs don't need to worry about you, right? Or at least not yet. go on Owen twelve a couple seasons, and who knows, maybe. But I don't want anybody listening that should, should to feel called out. I want the the guy who lives in Boulder and uh, spends his Saturdays working in his garden to, to feel called out, right? And not even because it's his fault, but more so because CU hasn't engaged him, hasn't gotten him in front of his TV, hasn't gotten him down to, to the stadium, whatever. Um, that, to me, is always the most important part of program building. And, and that's kind of reinforced just thinking through all these things and reading these things today, is that that is where your value comes from. You know, it's it's like any business. You know, when we're talking about how much money do you get, it, it, in any business you say, well, how much do the customers give you? And that's how it works here too. You know, if if you have another 10% fans, guess what? You should probably expect 10% more shirt sales, 10% more jersey sales, 10% more fans watching on TV, which, you know, they're... The, the, they pay however much to DirecTV to watch CBS and DirecTV pays CBS to, to let them show CBS and then CBS pays the the Pac-12 to to show those games and CBS pays that or then the Pac-12 pays that to the schools. And so again, all of this money does start with the fans and trickle in. You know, I guess there's some other stuff that's that's sponsorship and so the money doesn't actually come from the fans but again that's that's the value that you're providing to those companies that are sponsoring you right as you say uh points bet hey points bet give us a million bucks a year and we will tell everybody who watches a cu game we'll have a sign up that says go download points bet and that's the value and again it's because you can say because we will have this many fans who see that sign and with this many fans that many of them will will click on it and out of that group that many will put money in or whatever so Remember that when you're trying to to grow how much money that you have, you at the end of the day, it comes down to your fan base and the size of it and how committed it is 
and also just how much money they have to blow on things like college football. Um, and it's so easy to get caught up in things like, yeah, well, you negotiated a bad TV deal. It's like, yeah, you negotiate a bad TV deal. But if every Pac-12 team was, you know, had a fan base 20% larger than what it is, then guess what? The overall deal would be about 20% larger. And, you know, you could still blow 10, 15, 20% on the margins by negotiating a bad deal. But that's focusing on this little last last piece Kind of that little maximizing, like, how do we maximize what we have instead of just making sure you have more? You know, it's, you know, if you go down and you're you're at a farmer's market and you grow carrots and you have two options to either say, like, hey, look how good these carrots are. Like, look, these are the best carrots. These carrots will do this for you. Um, we're going to sell these carrots really well. And it's like, yeah, sell those carrots really well also bring a shit ton of carrots so that you can sell more carrots in the first place and hopefully get a better price for them too if you do a good job selling them. So I do think that that piece to me is is always the most important and that is reinforced today and we'll talk about why that's hard to do in Boulder but I think it's also just worth remembering that yeah I've talked about this part in particular a whole lot. You have students to indoctrinate. Like, you are just fed fans. You are just being fed fans. And it's up to you to decide what you do with them. Can you turn these, I don't know, whatever, 10,000, 18-year-old kids who are just planted into your stadium for six, six Saturdays a year, can you turn them into lifelong fans who are going to be giving you money for 50 years after they graduate? That's challenge number one. And you need to do everything you possibly can to turn them into fans. You know, whether it's giving them free tickets, like the idea that they have to pay a hundred bucks to get in the games. It's like, yeah, it's not a huge barrier. Take away every barrier though, because this is, it's, it's like what? It's like investing in education. They say like, yeah, you put a dollar into funding education. It turns out to be $8 to the economy later on. There's a, there's a probably half true stat from the economics major hosting your podcast. Um, but it's that same thing where this will pay off over decades and it's just worth it. It's 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 just worth it. You know, beyond giving game for free, keep those giveaways going like they do the basketball games. Give giveaways in the fourth quarter. Make sure people stick around. Bring free pizza to everybody. Give them coupons to pick up a free drink and whatever over there. See if you can lax the security so they can sneak in more of the things they want to sneak in to have more fun. Like that to me is the first big circle. And you know, it again is a, is a big student section going to be the reason why you wind up having another $5 million the next year? No. But, you know, we talk about, like, the, the Crocs owner. You know, you had the, the South Park guys or billionaires or whatever. They're CU fans. But they aren't quite CU fans to the level where they're just handing over half that money to the college. Um, you know, Crocs guy, if, if when he went through CU, you had indoctrinated him Maybe you're picking up another five, ten mil a year from that guy because they sell a lot of Crocs, and that money is out there. That money is out there, and I think focusing on the Crocs guy might be the wrong approach. Looking at that student section and saying one of these kids is probably going to wind up with a bunch of money, and if he loves us, we're going to get our hands on some of that money. So do everything we can because for that Crocs guy, for all those guys, it's too late, and not not necessarily not necessarily too late. But if you take somebody who's 45 and say, we want to convince you to be uh, a diehard CU fan, 
It's a lot tougher than the kid who's standing with all the girls and, you know, they snuck in whatever they snuck in, having the time of their life, and it's turning into a big party under the lights, and they're rushing the field because the Buffs just beat Oregon State in double overtime. Getting that kid to be a diehard CU fan is so, so, so much easier. And yeah, the benefit doesn't pay off for quite a while, but that benefit does pay off. Um, And, you know, a little bit of positivity here. That pandemic in some ways helps. Like, and it's, ter- it's terrible that it happened, and it's not worth the trade-off, obviously. And they and CU lost some money as well. Um, not saying we need more pandemics, we do not. But the the one real big perk for Colorado is that you had so many people, so many people who were at whatever level of fandom, who said we we want to go to this football game. You know what? We've been locked up inside. I haven't seen a football game in forever. I used to go to one or two a year. Ah, eh, you know what? It's week one. It's football. It's under oh new Ralphie. Let's get out there. Or or there's however many who just said like we just want something fun to do on a Saturday. Um, you, in the student section, you had two classes of students who were there for the first time. You know your freshman class from this year, obviously first time as students. Year before that, those freshmen didn't get to go to any games, so they feel like this is their first game. It is their first game. So you wind up having these higher turnouts for these different reasons and because of that people have a better time when there is a when there is a big turnout you know that that's just the way a student section works in particular but but football as a whole it's sports as a whole if there's a bunch of fans singing and chanting and yelling and cursing and getting fired up that's a better fan experience for everybody and so by increasing the fan experience you you increase the odds of these people coming back and with more people coming back that fan experience so you have this little positive cycle that's going on you have this great student section and you're not probably going to make money off them for another 15 years outside of like yeah we'll buy the the cheap tickets the cheap season tickets that young alumni get and then after that I mean, we'll we'll buy a couple hats every year or whatever down the line if they wind up with more money who knows maybe they're donating and who know but but that's the long game, and, and that's what needs to be always focused on, always focused on. And you go to these donors and pick up what you can now, but the, you have this good thing going. Keep that going. Keep fans happy. And honestly, who knows? If they hadn't gone 4-2 and two at home last year, then where would we be? Like, it still wasn't, like, a, a dream game day for every fan who went. You know, we went to those tailgates. We ha- we held those tailgates, and then we had people come by, and we talk and be like, yep, yeah, probably going to lose this one, too. Oh, Arizona's in town. They lost 17 in a row. <sighs> They're still probably going to beat us. And, and that's not the environment you should be having before games. Like, it'd be nice if it's, yeah, let's go kick some USC ass. This is the year. This is whatever. That's the environment that you want to have. Um, and it, it, most of those were cleaned up again. You're four and two at home in, in, in last season. So it's not like it was terrible, miserable days. Um, but the, you did have losing lingering over that still, the fact that you were able to win those games, that the environment was good. That's probably going to help season ticket renewals. Although that effect is likely canceled out by the overall losing and how they lost and whatever. But there's a, there's some thoughts on all of that. There's some thoughts on all of that and kind of where I think the direction needs to be pointed. You got to get people engaged. And and there are plenty of people who are engaged. You got to kick them up a notch and do everything that you possibly can to to get more fans in because again, fans provide value. And winning provides value too because you know, you know, if 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 a game's on CBS, how often are are or what percentage of the viewership 
is Colorado fans? What percentage is just national football fans? I have no idea. It could be 10% Colorado fans, but because it's a national broadcast, since it's one of the three games you can watch over the air, whatever, 90% national. And so you do need to have the winning to get some national attention as well. But again, it all starts local. And the Buffs are in a tough place for that, right? The Buffs are in a tough place because what Boulder is now is not necessarily like a football community, especially when, like, when you look at Texas. Like down in Texas, all anybody cares about is football. Louisiana and Mississippi, like football is life. Football is life. And you also look at most of those SEC schools and they are not competing with an NFL team. And they absolutely are not competing with the smallest market to have all four major sports teams. That's just a tough break for CU. You know, you can talk about, yeah, you have the Broncos down the road. The football fans are going to gravitate toward the Broncos because first, they're one of the brand names in the NFL. You know, yeah, they've been down for a couple years, but what? They've they've had more losing seasons in the last five years than they have in the 40 prior to that, whatever that stat is. Like, that's that's a very consistent team that's putting out Super Bowl champions, what, three in the last 25 years. You expect one every 32 in a 32-team league. Like, that's really tough to compete with, and they have a strong football hold here. But I think that, you know, just in terms of scale, especially anywhere but the South, comparing a college football team's fan base to an NFL team's, the NFL team's just going to win. Like, it's just bigger. You know, Seahawks in Washington, more Seahawks fans, absolutely. But when you look at everything else in the sports scene in, in Colorado, you know, you, you you have the Rockies, and you have the Nuggets, and the Avalanche. If, if the Rockies and the Nuggets were for some reason to just say, like, ah, you know what, we're going to... Mexico City, everybody wants to get into to a new new country. Like, we're, we're moving down to Mexico City, and all of a sudden you're left with the two major pro sports teams. That would help CU for sure. Just by just like pulling some of the the sports options out of the market, it would help them build that fan base. And so you're in a tough position for that reason. You know, if people are moving to Boulder, it's it's easier to move places than it ever has been in the past. Still, plenty of barriers, but easier than ever. And if you're if you're moving to Tuscaloosa, odds are you're a Bama football fan. There aren't a lot of reasons to move to Tuscaloosa. If you're moving to Boulder. You might like hiking or rafting or biking or skiing or just cute little small towns or paying seriously high prices or you like uh, you, you partake in whatever you partake in and it's legal there or easier there or more culturally accepted to whatever tabs of whatever I don't know but there's a lot of reasons to move to Boulder. You're not just getting diehard football fans influxed in. You're not building that culture up just organically. Unless you really do win, unless you kind of take hold of the people who are there, and again, there's there's so many levels to all of this. Again, you you want to you want to try to get Colorado up to Bama's level. It's not just about pulling in another three thousand, five thousand, ten thousand over fans from the Boulder area. You know that's not going to do it. You you got to do some more work on recruiting. You got to do some more work on all sorts of different stuff. You got to upgrade the facilities again, probably. You've got great facilities, but you want to go toe to toe with Bama? Probably need to upgrade those again at some point. You know, you're not just one step away. There isn't one fix everything solution. But if you want to make sure that the program is in a good place down the road, at least build the bones up. Like like that's that's where you start. To me, it isn't. Well, we got to put all of our resources toward maximizing this TV deal. Yeah. It'd be nice, and and you you better put some resources toward that. 
you got to think about what's going on decades from now, though. And what's going on decades from now is that you have however many fans you have, and the more you can build that fan base between now and then, better equipped you're going to be to, to deal with whatever the challenges are down the road. It'd be one thing if you were right around the corner from a Pac-12 championship, from a CFP play appearance, and you can go all in on right now. Build for the future is my big thought here. And it's, again, you're gift-wrapped all these kids. Indoctrinate them. Indoctrinate them. Do whatever it takes. Give out free shirts. Give out free shots for all I care. I mean, there's there's ways to do it. Um, so there we go. Um, shout out to that student section. They did great. They, they were everywhere. They were loud. They were one of the best in the Pac-12. Um, that was true for football and basketball. And things are going well. You know, I, for whatever reason, whether that's moves the athletic department made, whether that's all pandemic-based, whether that's the football team winning two-thirds of its home games and putting a good product out there, letting people end the night happy, or at least happier than when they started. You still might get halfway home on your drive and be like, well, yeah, it was a great win over Oregon State. Are we really going to beat Oregon next week? And then uh, after that, go beat uh, whoever and then whoever and then whoever after that so that we'll be eligible for a bowl game. Probably not, but, you know, it, it. everyone helps. Again, it's just, it's a particularly hard to build that fan base when you're losing in college football just because of the way the, the sport is structured, right? You know, you look at, for, take the NFL, football, for example. Go football to football. If you're five and six heading into week 12 or you had your bye week, so week 13 of the NFL season, you're still very much alive. You might need to finish 4-1 and one to feel good about your playoff chances, but you're very much alive, and you really didn't do anything. If at some point you're 5-6 and six in college football, you're fighting for a bowl game, and nobody gives a, an, a freak about a bowl game at this point. Nobody cares, unless it's the Rose Bowl or the Orange Bowl or one of those. Nobody cares about a bowl game. So when you just look at how it's built and... Four teams out of 130 go to the college football playoff. All of a sudden, you know, you, you got teams who three weeks into the season are out of the running. And that doesn't mean the season's over because you can also play for conference championship. You know, there's kind of two tiers of, of, of success in college football. But for that conference championship, you again, like you need to be almost perfect. In some conferences, like you, you don't even get to go to the championship game. It's not about finishing first of six in the regular season. It's finishing first of 12 or whatever. So for Colorado, if, if you start conference play two and two, then what are you saying? You're saying we got four weeks left in the season and we have to be perfect and it still probably won't be enough. That's what's so rough. You know, that's what's so rough. Um, to not have that seasons end seasons die more quickly in college football again you still have bowl games but those don't mean what they used to mean you know nobody's getting excited about the cheese at bowl nobody's getting honestly typically that excited about the alamo bowl like in colorado when when it breaks a streak and all that sort of stuff yeah you can get there but bowl eligibility i, I think that the in, when you look at the decline of college football i think that has a lot to do with it is just that so many teams are out of it early and and you know when Colorado like like I said earlier in the podcast when Colorado's sitting there five and zero, and they they've got a game against Oregon State a game that they should win that's exciting that's for me somebody who I think had 
once ever in my life turned on a CU game. A couple times my dad had the Rocky Mountain Showdown, showdown on. It's like, yeah, I like the Nuggets. I like the Avs. I really like the Broncos. I like the Rockies. It's like, oh, everybody everybody in this little community, they're all tweeting about this game. Might as well turn it on. It's Saturday. I'm hanging out at home. I'm in college. Whatever. Might as well turn it on. The, the Nuggets probably just ended. Whatever. So I turn it on. And I think that there's another world where if you could get into the playoffs at 9-3, and three, which, again, just isn't practical for college football. I don't know how you fix any of this. If, if you're looking for 9-3 and three on the year, well, guess what? If you're 7-2, and two, I'm turning those games on, right? And I think it's just easier to suck people in. Now, at the same time, this is something that Dre and I talk, Andre Simone from DNVR, we, we've talked about this sort of stuff before, and particularly, particularly when we're talking about expanding the college football playoff. I love the idea. For the reason that it gives more teams a shot, it keeps more programs in it late in the season, it engages those fan bases. People just want that. And and then on top of it, the tournament is way more fun. Playoff football is what it's all about. That's the best thing that's ever been invented is playoff football. Dre's point is that there's no sport that has a regular season that's so important as college, as, as college footballs. College football is all about the regular season. And then there's like a couple games at the end from a couple teams to shake a couple things out. It's the only sport where the regular season is that important. And I agree. From a national level, it's incredible. Like if you're a casual college football fan, you don't you aren't like a diehard of a team, then it's like, yeah. When you get down to the final week of college football, guess what? There's three teams that need to win to stay in the college football playoff. Sometimes they're playing each other. Sometimes there's six or seven, depending on how things shake out. Um and those games are really exciting. The week before that, there's twice as many. And those are a lot of fun just to, to watch and be like, oh, is, is Bama going to choke? If Bama chokes here, they could be out. And that opened up a spot for whoever. And, and that part of it is really fun. But if you're a fan of 90-plus percent of college football teams, and that's kind of what you're tuned into, you know, you, you watch Colorado football and maybe you catch another game every weekend – you're not all that engaged by that just because your team has been out of it for quite a while. and Or maybe recently, depending if we say it's 90 plus percent, but 50% of teams are out of it months before this. And, I don't know, should, should they have a chance in national title? I don't know. Like, I don't know. But it'd be more fun if they did, right? If you could say, oh, at least they get to go to the tournament and they'll, they'll get a chance against Bama. Who knows? Maybe you take them down. Maybe you pull off the upset. Whatever. It's, it's just... Uh, there's issues in college football, and that's hurting everybody. There's issues in the Pac-12, and that's hurting everybody in the Pac-12. But also, there is something to the idea that it's not just about the whether you can maximize your value. It's about building that value. And then that's hopefully where Colorado is focused and, and hopefully what they're working on. Um, because again, like, yeah, does it suck that you went from the Big 12 to the Pac-12 and then the Pac-12 sucked? Yep. And you lost money because of that, and that money could... Money typically does translate to wins in college football. That's just the way it works, which is dumb in its own right, but here we are. At the same time, does getting into the Pac-12 South and seeing USC just flop for a decade, it kind of opened a door for Colorado, and it's a door that Colorado didn't take advantage of. You know, you got one season where you won the Pac-12 South. There were opportunities out there. If you wanted to make Colorado one of these valuable schools, there was a chance because it used to be. It used to be. You know, Ice Cube was wearing the hat in the music video. We all saw it. Like, it's a... It's not... It's not just a Pac-12 problem. And and even if Colorado, I guess, did 
10 times its value. A lot of that all obviously gets split. You wind up doubling the payout, I guess, probably about that to, to every Pac-12 team. And so you do rely on the others more than other sports. But when the SEC is expanding, when the Big Ten's doing whatever, it'd be nice to be one of the valuable teams. Like you, you, this riding on the coattails mentality. Oh, the Pac-12 is screwing us over. Well, look at this program. How valuable is it right now, as of today? Not not what it used to be, not what it should be in 10 years. What is this program worth today? And can you really say it it should have more money than this? The answer is yeah. It, it's, it should probably have like 50 million in payouts versus 35. But that's not closing the gap with the big schools. To close the gap, you need to build from the ground up. You need to you need to engage more fans. And and the bulk of that comes from doing it at home with your people, with Colorado grads and former Colorado players and all those sorts of things. And I can't say that like they're trending in the right direction. I mean, we saw it happen last year. But what I can say is that with the way that that crowd was last year, particularly with that student section, Right now, you got to maintain that student section. And that should be something that a lot of people are focused on. And you do that by winning games. Like, that that should not be forgotten. You, you do engage fans by winning games. But you do have this little head start right now. You have people who want to be interested, who, who want this program to succeed. And if you give them that and build, that opportunity, I think, is there in a way that it hasn't been for, you know, I mean, basically since before the pandemic. I think it's it's easier to get people to buy in. Um, so, I don't know. I guess the big takeaway is that you have to remember, if you want more money, you need to be worth more money. And to be worth money, it's what are people willing to pay? And how many people are willing to pay what? And to remember that it's all about the fans at the end of the day. And that, that can get distracting. But it is... Uh, it's the world we live in, you know, build that value by building a fan base and build a fan base by winning and honestly winning in fun ways and being engaged with the community and going out and doing whatever. I think that's, that's what Colorado could do to help itself more than anything else. So yeah, there's, if there was a button you could press and say, Oh, look, we just make this one little change and guess what? We get to compete with Bama for national championship. Wouldn't that be incredible? That's not how things work, though. And making sure that you understand what the goal is, and I think making that goal, raising the value to bring in more money, and then use that money to build more. Like that, it's an approach that I think could go pretty well. And who knows? Maybe it's an approach that they're taking at CU. Um, there was a nice little rant. Nice little rant. Um, I think that that's probably all my thought. What else could there be to say, really? Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to go back through and look at the mistakes, you can see the mistakes. Hiring Dan Hawkins was a mistake. Dan Hawkins playing Cody Hawkins, his son, instead of, you know, I, I said in the story, like, he probably could have gotten better quarterback recruits um, had he had they felt that they had more of a chance to, to start, all those sorts of things. Yeah, there's a little decision that, that winds up having ramifications for those quarterbacks, which down the line hurts the next coach, Embry, who comes in and doesn't have the quarterbacks to succeed, and then who knows how all that plays out. But all these little ripple decisions. You know, you, you let the athletic director who you're about to fire, you, you let him pick the next head coach. It's like, yeah, you, you already probably know you don't trust this guy, you don't think things are going well, and you let him make a big decision like that. Well, that set the program back a few more years. But I don't know. 
it's always I mean, it's good to look through the past, right, and see what went wrong, especially just to have it all put together like that. Like I said, like I've heard the stories about those games. I've heard the stories about those locker rooms. I've heard the stories about what the players felt about these coaches. I've heard the stories about whatever. But then just to see it all kind of put together and played out like that, I don't know. It's nothing all that revolutionary in there. Nothing revolutionary at all. But it does give us a reason to kind of go down this. Not that I went on like a history track, but I guess maybe some alternate history. Like if you just had that Crocs guy, if you had if you had hooked him when he was at CU, where is the program now? I wonder. I'm just gonna Google wealthiest CU grads and and see what comes up. Um, wealthiest CU grads. Uh, notable alumni, list of Boulder, famous university, 10 most famous CU Boulder attendees. Do they have a lot of wealthy grads? Okay, we'll click on that and see if anything comes out. Um, yeah, I don't, this, this was probably better research beforehand, but there are people who graduated from CU with money and, there are ways that CU could have approached that to, to make more money, and it's approaching them before they have money. That's a, that's typically a cue with rich and famous people, right? Show up to them when they're rich and famous. They won't want anything to do with you. Show up before that. Be a good person. Don't be there for them, you know? So <sighs> I guess we can probably move along. It does feel like I probably have more to say, but hell, we can come up with more in future days. There is one more thing. And we kind of, I, I kind of talked around this, but the w one other thing that he did say, Stuart Mandel in this story, um, he has pointed out how other schools have that pseudo owner, pseudo owner. That's what he called it. Um, just somebody who kind of acts like an NFL owner over a college program and they let him do it because they get so much money and Colorado doesn't have that. And I don't think I've addressed that like directly, but when we talk about the Crocs guy, like that's, that's what you're thinking about, right? Is they think their example is like Phil Knight at Oregon, or I guess Oklahoma State has a guy who's similar to that. But but this person who just pays a lot of money pays for probably whatever ten million bucks a year, fifty million bucks a year. Who knows what the number is? But because of that, gets however much control and say, and and that's what you're looking for. Because as terrible as that is, like it's like you look at the USC situation. They had whoever their super booster was, and I think he actually died recently, um, which was sad, but. You know, some of the takes that were coming out from USC fans at the time was, I mean, he has been the guy who picked out some of these coaches. And while it's great to have all the money, you're also giving power to, to somebody. And, and if that person doesn't use that power well, you pay the consequences. And, and so there's obviously pros and cons that come with that pseudo-owner situation. But if you have that, you're probably in a much better place than Colorado is right now. You know, you, you, you do have... You know, what if what if Colorado was able to say, you know what, Lincoln Riley, take 13 million bucks a year. We'll guarantee it for five years and and we'll f we'll have th this guy's willing to just pay for it. Like all of a sudden things change, right? Or you say, you know what, we we just want to double our staff. Who knows what we're going to use it for? Maybe it's just like, you know, the design people or, or whatever to, to build hype videos or, or whatever you're going to do with it. But there's something to be done. There's always something to be done. And again, could could Colorado have had that super owner or that pseudo owner who's a super donor that the, probably passed through the doors and you just didn't catch him with whatever you could have caught him with? I I don't know, but you got to try and start with the future and build backwards. Um, 
Okay, we can we can move along. Breckenridge Brewery is incredible. Drink their beers. Like I said, I'm going to the DMVR bar tonight. Um, I actually, I had a few Breckenridge beers. Particularly, I guess I had the Seltzers. It was a Seltzer night on Saturday. Because of that, I probably had my fill. I've got things to do all week. Um, but I might sip on a Strawberry Sky. Especially if I get, I think I'll probably get there before the game. Have a little pregame Strawberry Sky before you get all the playoff vibes going. It's important to get, get keep your hands free. Um, during those playoff games, I feel like. But I mean, get a table, put your beer on it, you'll be happy. Also, you should come down to the bar if you're looking for a good time. Like, it's standing room only. Um, last year, I know that if you got there about a half hour before the game, you'd probably get a table. Um, I don't even want a table, like I said. Let's, let me stand and scream. But it's packed, just hundreds of Nuggets fans. and The environment's incredible. It's honestly a better environment than at the stadium, um, at the arena for those games. So, Come on down, drink some Breckenridge beers, have a good time. Hopefully the Nuggets can even the series out. And if they do, I mean, that's the weird thing about these seven-game series, right? Is if you're down 2-0, you feel like you're in trouble. But also, the formula for winning as the underdog is steal one road game. You know, and you didn't get that done early on, but you get other opportunities. It's like, yeah, every team's probably going to win its home games, kind of what you'd expect. Um, so you feel like it's a loss if you're 2-0. If if you're if you tie the series at one and one, all the all of a sudden you're in a great position. You're you're you have home court advantage the rest of the way, and it's a tied series. You know, so it is a very important game for that reason. For a bunch, of, I mean, it's a playoff game, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a wild night. It's gonna be a wild night for sure. Um, Breckenridge Brewery though, that's uh, those seltzers, good company, hard seltzers. Definitely get your hands on those. DraftKings Sportsbook. Uh, we've got some cool offers going with them. The first one, the one that you should really get in on, is you bet $5 on any team to win any game in these NBA playoffs. You'll get $150 in free bets instantly. You don't have to get your bet right. Just immediately $150 in free bets in your account. It's an awesome deal for new users, so definitely get in with that. Um, and all DraftKings Sports with customers can bet on NBA hoops with same-game parlays. You get to combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. More legs you add, more money you can win. Plus, each day of the first round, you get a risk-free bet up to $10 if your same game parlay doesn't hit. So you got to make sure you're getting in on that because you get the free bet anyways. Throw 10 bucks down on something because why not? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use the promo code DMVR. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game during the first round of the playoffs. You'll get $150 in free bets instantly. That's promo code DMVR at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only, new customers only, minimum $5 deposit. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Okay. Um, also, want to tell you guys about Ripple. If you guys are into um, marijuana... You might also be into Ripple. Even if you're not into marijuana, uh, then the uh, the Ripple could still be for you. Uh, the way that it works is it's like this little packet, just this little tiny packet, like the size of uh, like half of your index finger probably. You just rip the top off, you pour it in your drink or in your food or just straight on your tongue if you want the, the, the fastest... Um, the fastest experience, I think is the word they use, um, but it starts absorbing within 10 minutes. You can depend on a consistent experience every time. It's clinically proven to hit two times faster than the leading gummy. Most importantly, it's the consistency that really stands out. You know, a lot of people are scared off by edibles because you take it and then it's like, well, what's going to happen? And you just don't know. And then maybe you're an hour in and you're like, hmm, I don't think anything happened. So you're like, oh, well, I'll take another and see if that does the trick. But then it hits you, and then the second one does too, and then all of a sudden, whatever. 
So that's why you go with Ripple. It's a consistent little packet. It's scientifically proven actually by Colorado State University, which we don't like, but they did good work here. Uh, it's a randomized placebo-controlled trial with real people. Results were published in a peer-reviewed journal. You can pick up Ripple at Colorado's premier dispensary. That's Lightshade with 11 convenient Denver, Metro, and Aurora locations. The Barnum location is now open. It's one block off of 6th and Federal, and it's the biggest Lightshade store. It has specialty products not offered at other locations. And for... Uh, for 420, they have five of their best-selling products. They'll be buy one, get one for a dollar. It's a great deal. It goes on from April 20th to April 26th. So get in there. Remember that podcast listeners also get 25% off all non-sale items with the code DNVR. Shop online at lightshade.com for pickup or visit a Lightshade location near you. Okay, back into buff stuff. Like I said, some commitments came in over the weekend, right? Those were all over the weekend. Yes. Um, had to double check. It was actually kind of fun how it panned out because we wound up getting to write about them and then immediately after another one came out. But uh, what we're going to do is just touch on these three new, actually four. We have four to get to. Four new players. That's right, because there was a transfer in there too. Oh boy. Oh boy. Let's uh, let's just go. Actually, let's not go chronologically, but we're going to start with the first one. And that was Andrew Metzger the tight end from Regis Jesuit High School. Um, this actually happened on the 14th. What was the 14th? Today's the 18th. So like Thursday last week, um, but we didn't have a chance to talk about it last week. So we're going to talk about that now. Andrew Metzger comes in from, uh, like I said, Regis Jesuit, local prospect. Um, I'm actually going to pull up 24-7 right now because I know they didn't have the like the composite ranking because I think 24-7 had graded him, but nobody else had. Um, so we'll, we'll see what that looks like as well. Um, it's kind of fun just to get on that website, and, and instead of having to like search for Colorado, you just go to recruiting rankings and go down, and they're number 10 in the country right now. But we'll get to that later. Um, yeah, so Andrew Metzger does now have the composite ranking. He's a .8499 rated recruit. Um, that makes him the number 45 tight end in the country. Uh, he was actually one of two tight ends that the Buffs brought in, both listed here as 6'5", 235. They also brought in Tucker Ashcraft yesterday, .81, which makes him a, a the number 50 tight end in the country. Um, comes in from Seattle. And honestly, the two of them are pretty similar. Um, we can get back to Metzger and then stop jumping back and forth so much. But But Metzger, big guy. Big blocker. That's what stands out. Um, stands out for both of these guys, honestly, is just the blocking ability. Um, that's that's what you like about them. It makes sense considering that they're juniors in high school and they're 6'5", 235. Um, but they can get that job done, and I think that makes sense right now considering that you're going to lose Brady Russell here pretty soon. And when I say that, this does sound kind of familiar like we've already talked about it. But even if that's the case, um, Brady... Brady's gone after this year, and what you have behind him is Eric Olson, Austin Smith, really exciting tight ends, both guys who you expect to be better pass catchers than blockers. So to kind of restock the cupboard with a couple of guys who you expect to, to probably lean the other way a little bit more, I really like it. I think that while maybe these aren't the most exciting commitments, bigger tight ends who are probably better blockers than receivers, they are very valuable, and I think that it's important that you kind of fill out your class with these guys. I would guess that these are the only two tight ends you bring in. 
right? Like the odds of bringing three tight ends in in one class seems slim. At the same time, who knows, especially with Brady being gone. Um, but I would at least expect kind of a pause at this point. Um, and if, you know, those young guys don't look good this season, then maybe you add more. Um, you also did bring in Caleb Fourier, Eric Olson, Louis Passereo, and Austin Smith. Those were over two seasons, so an average of two apiece. I can't remember if it was two and two or three and one, but, you know, maybe there's room for another, especially since you only brought in one in the 2022 class. As of right now, though, this is, uh, I would guess, kind of your group. Um, big picture with the tight ends, I think it's pretty obvious what these guys are looking for. Um, they, they are not sacrificing size. I think that that's notable. You know, you look at some of the DBs they bring in, um, particularly the cornerbacks, and you say, okay, they're willing to go with somebody who's 5'11", 6 foot, 5'10", even, a little bit little bit skinny. And I think part of that has to do with those are the guys who are going to the NFL at this point anyway. There aren't nearly as many big corners who are playing in the NFL as there used to be, in part because of the way the receivers are, um, part because you just aren't playing the run game so much. You can sacrifice a little bit of size there because it's not going to hurt you as much, whatever. But cornerbacks are getting smaller in the NFL. Uh, CU's cornerbacks are getting smaller as well. Um, I think that CU would probably like to go get the six foot three, four three, forty type of cornerbacks. But again, when you're not going to be able to get all of the very best players because you're not putting the best product on the field, you know, you're going to lose most battles to Alabama or Texas A&M or whoever. I think that we see that they're willing to sacrifice um, the size in exchange for keeping some of that technical stuff, the quickness, those sorts of things um, at cornerback. At tight end, though, like I'm saying, I, I, first of all, Austin Smith, a little bit different mold for sure, but still a really big guy who could very easily get up to 250 pounds. Eric Olson, same thing. Um but with these two, I think it's pretty clear. These are both probably minimum 250 pounds when they see the field in Boulder. You might even see them get up to 260 if that's how the Buffs want to use them. Um, but but very good blockers, both of them. Uh, Metzger, Regis Jesuit guy, he, uh, he shows a little bit of receiving ability, particularly underneath. There's a lot of... A lot of him just kind of looping out in front of the offensive line, sitting down in a gap between the linebackers in the zone, catching a ball five yards downfield and trying to run somebody over. Um, good good at moving the sticks, doing that sort of thing. On tape, at the very least, we just aren't seeing much of a downfield threat. Um, when he does run downfield, which you see a couple times, again, not the sharpest routes, um, but it's not. you wouldn't expect him to be a polished route runner given what he does and how big he is and the fact that he's a junior in high school. you know, So that's the sort of stuff that you can probably coach up anyway. Um, didn't see any great examples of his just pure speed. Um, but again, it doesn't seem like that's his game. Who knows what he is three, four years from now when he finally gets on the field in Boulder, though. you know, So um, that's, a, that's kind of a, a quick little look at him. Ashcraft similar in that he's blocking first a um, little bit more of a, a field stretcher a little bit more of a vertical threat that threat they let him get downfield a little bit more seems like he's pretty productive again with that size uh, the the biggest advantage that you can have is just in the blocking game and so that is what stands out but again at 65235 of course that's what's going to stand out like in high school football who is who is going to beat that guy um, so a little more of a vertical threat in Ashcraft a little bit more of a possession sort of guy with Metzger. Both, you you start by looking at the blocking ability, though. Um, 
Also, let's see. So let me close the Metzger tab. Now we'll close the Ashcraft tab. These stories are up at DMVR, by the way. Um, if you want to, like, I included some huddle highlights, that sort of stuff. Um, let's, uh, let's knock out the transfer lineman next. Um, Luke Eckhart, he comes from, um, from Arizona. He, uh, was recruited there by Kyle Devan. You remember Kyle Devan, current offensive line coach at CU. Uh, two jobs ago, he was at Arizona as their offensive line coach. Uh, and he was the one who brought Eckert into Arizona. Uh, Eckert was a true freshman last year, wound up redshirting the season. He has four years of eligibility left. Didn't see the field at all. I think he was listed as six... Uh, I know it's in the story for sure. 6'6", 265 as a recruit. Or no, 6'7", 265 as a recruit. Um, he is a tackle prospect. That's where you expect him to fit in. Um, at Arizona, they had him at six foot six, so down an inch, but they didn't include a weight, which I thought was interesting, but... We don't really know where he fits in. You wouldn't expect him. There's no way he sees the field at less than 285. Um, and he probably has to get to 300 before you have, before you say like, yeah, that's a guy who's ready to go. If there's an injury or whatever, who knows? He might he might be the next guy up on the list, even if he's under 300. But with a frame like he has, it does seem like he needs to fill out quite a bit before he's going to be uh, be ready to play. But again, like we, I just there's no tape of him last year, so we don't really know where he's at physically, other than that he you would take him as a project, and um, that was a project that Kyle Devan wanted to take when he was at Arizona. But he's coming up to Boulder. We'll see what happens there. Um, I don't expect him to factor in this season. Um, I think that next year is kind of when the door opens, but... Probably the year after that is when you say, okay, this is go time. Um, and at that point, what? He would have, he could play two years if if he follows that plan, um, which again, for a lineman is about what you expect. The reason for that, again, is that the Buffs just don't have any senior linemen. Um, you know, their, their tackles are probably going to be Frank Phillip, who's a junior, so he'll graduate um, after next year. And who knows, maybe he leaves early. Um, but then Jake Wiley will leave the year after that. Um, so I think that that's when you look at Luke Eckert and Travis Gray and Carter Edwards and Jackson Anderson, all those guys. Say so like, uh, maybe that's probably when the door really opens for Jared Christian Lichtenhand too. Although he could be a step ahead, um, just because he was kind of that number three tackle last year. Yeah, I think he was number three. He might have been number four. I think he was the number three tackle off the top of my head. Um, so that's a. Uh, that's what this is looking like. So don't don't expect him to step in and start. Um, but next year, expect him to compete. Year after that, um, I think there's probably four guys competing for two spots. So there we go. Um, two, 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 two. One more commitment to hit, and we save the we probably save the best for last. Again, we don't want to lean too much into the the recruit rankings or whatever, but. Hey, this is the new number one on the list. Uh, he's a .89 recruit. That means he's pretty close to being a four-star. Um, just looking through these, um, I would guess that somewhere has him as a four-star. I could be wrong, but I think at some point he was a four-star. I can't, I can't find him anywhere, though. Um, but again, .89 recruit. That makes him the best in the class. Um, just for comparison... 
Um, second best is AJ Newberry, the running back. So when we talked about him last time, and Adrian Wilson. So remember, AJ Newberry, the running back, Adrian Wilson, the safety, both committed from Texas last week. Neither of them had their uh, their ratings yet because they hadn't been rating by all the services. Um, Newberry comes in at point eight six. Adrian Wilson at a .85. Newberry is now the number two of the nine recruits. Adrian Wilson now the number four of the nine recruits. So I, I you remember I had Wilson ahead of Newberry. Um, so I, I I stand by that. Um, but if you were concerned by the fact that they weren't all rated, you can push those concerns to the side. Um, as I was saying though, for context. Uh, when we go back to that 2020 recruiting class, that was the big one for CU. Um, Ashad Clayton was a .928. Jason Harris, a .90. Christian Gonzalez, a .895. Brendan Rice, a .894. Brendan Lewis, a .8847. And then Jake Ray, a .86. Uh, so... Um, C.J. Turner would have been the number five recruit in that class, falling just behind Christian Gonzalez and Brendan Rice, right ahead of Brendan Lewis. Um, so, again, very good pickup when we're trying to look back. Um, and, you know, that that number two prospect for Colorado, again, bit of a drop-off there to down to the point eight six four six, but that's just slightly ahead of where Jake Ray was, as Jake Ray was the number six in that class. So, um Actually, so it's funny. Brendan Rice is a point eight nine four nine in that class. That was a four star. So with uh, that point eight nine flat, C.J. Turner, the the Buffs' new linebacker commit, very close to surpassing that threshold. Um, and I'm I'm sure he was a he was a four star by one of the services. So again, I guess before we dig too deep into uh, C.J., might as well say that. As we look at this class for Colorado, I do I do like the way it's filling out. I think that the the depth is very good. The depth is very comparable to that 2020 class that Mel Tucker brought in. Um, it's just to 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 really get to that level, you need to have at least two more of those guys who who are CJ's level or above. If you do that, then continue to fill out this class with the sorts of guys you've been bringing in, bring in just more average recruits. Um, we'd be, we'd be saying that these two classes are very comparable. Um, that those top pieces though, those are the ones that are a little bit tougher to get. And on top of that, holding on to your recruits is also very challenging, especially when you get these commitments so early. So of the nine that they have now, I don't think it'd be bold to say that two or three wind up decommitting at some point. Um, I think that that's probably the number you'd honestly expect. Now, things will change. If, if you go undefeated this year, guess what? These guys will probably stick on the train. Um, but you also look at, you know, C.J. Turner, his offer list. You know, he's from Star City, Arkansas. He has the offer to Arkansas, or no, no offer to Arkansas, but they have interest. Um, they have offers to Arkansas State, to Kansas, Memphis, Tulane, Jackson State. So you don't have the big schools, right? Well, what happens if Ohio State says, you know what? We're in on this guy. Does he flip his commitment? We'll see. But this is um, this is one that you have to to keep an eye on for sure, and uh, we'll we'll see how it all shakes out. Um, yeah, there's a uh, that sort of stuff. Um, 
like I said earlier, nine commits for CU, um, easily the most in the Pac-12. Number number two is USC with three. Um, that's uh, I, I honestly don't know how to feel about that. I do think I like it, but I'm not totally committed to that feeling, if that makes sense. Um, I think it makes sense to me, especially when you look at Colorado. You know, it, how how does Colorado beat Georgia for a recruit? Colorado is the first one to send him a letter, the first one to call him on the phone, first one to send coaches out there, first one to bring him in for a visit. All the time you're saying, you're our guy, you're our guy, we want you. Meanwhile, Georgia comes in late and says, hey, you know what? You finally convinced us. We'll give you an offer. And the, the kid could say, you know what? This one, this one team, they really love me. This program, they really want me. I'm just another guy somewhere else. They didn't prioritize me. And so when, when that is your path to winning recruiting battles, getting in early on guys has to be the way you do it. It just has to be. Um, and, and that's something that Colorado obviously has done with nine commitments, which I think is the third most in the country, I believe. So 15 for Texas Tech. 10 for Arkansas, um, 9 for Ohio State, and Penn State, and Louisville, and Baylor, and Colorado. Um, And it kind of falls off from there. So well ahead of everybody else, but I do think that has to be the strategy. Um, And although that does mean that these guys might decommit at some point, you know, Edward Schultz came on this podcast, the speedy receiver from California, and said, I'm still taking my visits. Like, I'm committed, but you, you got to do your due diligence. You can't blame him for that. Um, but Colorado does have the head start, the leg up. They're the status quo, you know? So we'll see. We'll see what happens from there. Um, so far, though, I do really like this class. You know, we've talked through, I think, all of these guys at some point on the podcast. Um, C.J. Turner, the linebacker, again, he has, he has some pop in his pads. It's the speed that really stands out when you watch him on the tape. Um, they're playing him at receiver even on offense and they're giving him a bunch of jet sweeps. He's making plays in space. Like it's six one two ten. That's what twenty four seven sports lists him as. You you don't expect him to move as well as he does or to look as linear. Or to even look as big as he does. Like you see him out there with those other football players and it almost looks like he's like six two and a half, six three. And and you know, obviously six one two ten. He's built built out pretty well. Um so when you do watch him, it's like, yeah, fringe four star, I can buy that. And then the other things you can do, obviously, like you play receiver on offense. Well, guess what? You line C.J. Turner up in the slot on a wide receiver. That there, were, I think, like the third clip of the highlight video I posted in my story. That's exactly what happens, and it's like this deep over crossing route, and C.J. is all over him all the way across the field as a linebacker, and then jumps up and makes the interception. Like the that sort of player is what the NFL is going toward. And he's all, so he's listed as the number 30 linebacker in the country. Um, and just running through these kind of quickly, you know, at six foot one, he's one of the smaller guys. You know, I don't think there's, yeah, there's, let me double check to make sure I don't say something dumb. Yeah, there is nobody in front of him who is under 5'11". So nobody, nobody in front of him in these rankings that is under five eleven. So, in in the past, that's usually how linebackers are built. Even in this draft class, you know, you look at the guys going to the NFL. Who are the top guys? Um, you know, I think Christian Harris is listed as six foot. Um, 
I think that uh, Nicobe Dean from Georgia, who's probably a second linebacker off the board, he's 5'11". So you you definitely see the trend that still... Oh, and I forgot he was number 30 linebacker, not number 50. You could go all the way out to 50, though, and there's nobody under six foot. Um, that's the way the linebacker's been built. Smaller. Not smaller. Boxier. So that they can hit those holes. Almost built more like a running back. Same reason you don't see a lot of 6'3 running backs. Because those guys have to kind of match up. Um, so I wonder if not being the... Six foot three, six foot two, kind of long, lanky, hybridy sort of guys hurting him in these rankings. Whereas you see what produces, and while sometimes you can hit on one of those freaks, that Jeremiah Wusu Kormoa, that Isaiah Simmons type, more often than not, these little boxy guys, if they have the speed, can can really pan out. You know, more more Roquan, Roquan Smith type. So I uh, I really like him. Obviously, I mean top recruit that adds adds up to me I, I would say um but still like you run through this class and say you have cj turner up there i like him a lot aj newberry the running back the way he catches the ball out of the backfield especially with this coaching staff i think he's a not only a, a very good player but a very good fit for this offense a very good fit for this and again you see 511 180 i bet if you look at the 40 running backs ranked in front of him um Actually, a lot of them are around 5'11". You still get some that 6'1", 6'1", 6'1", 6' foot, 6 foot. But I guess that is pretty standard. So I was wrong there. But uh, again, that fit with the offense, I think that that's a great pickup. Nikhil Bitrand, the big mean guy from Pennsylvania, the, the tackle, 6'7", 3'10". I mean, first of all, 6'7", 3'10", that's tackle size. That checks the first box. Looks mean on tape. Hasn't really played anybody. Um, has the build. We'll see what happens. Adrian Wilson, I love the pop that he has. We talked about this, but when they when he hits, he can knock guys backward, and CU hasn't had a lot of safeties, defensive backs recently who have that. You know, you have Nate who can hit, but just to have somebody in the back there who can be kind of that physical presence, that's something that football teams need. And at the very least, he provides that. He also has the speed to play the middle of the field. Um, I, I wonder if he wi- winds up being more their strong safety, that man coverage type, or whether they put him in the back to, to kind of mimic Mark Perry. I would guess that they see him more as the strong safety, who typically for Colorado is in man coverage on the tight end. Um, but but we'll see how that all plays out. Um, Cam Beiser, the edge from uh, Houston, he's a... Uh, He's he's kind of a specimen, honestly, like just with the athleticism. He's another one. Like I'm just running through these in the order of how they're ranked in the class. It's like a .85 prospect. I wouldn't be surprised if that goes up next year. Like I'd honestly be surprised if it doesn't because you just look at him out there and you're like, yeah, that's a it's a big dude. Like there's you can see him pursue running plays down the field. You know, he's he's running down running backs from behind. So the athleticism at six two and a half and and 230 pounds. I mean, he puts on 15 pounds and and becomes just a little bit more explosive, and all of a sudden you could be talking about an, an NFL type of guy because again the production's there. He's getting the backfield. He's hitting quarterbacks. He's hitting quarterbacks hard, knocking the ball out. But then just what he does at the line of scrimmage, like there's just a a football IQ there, a slipperiness there, a fluidity. I guess is probably the best word. Um, where you know he isn't doing what he'd need to do in in college football. You know, in college football, you, you got to have some moves. In the NFL, you really got to have moves. You know, every every play is a battle. It's just one-on-one on the edge. You're going up against somebody who's really good. It's kind of like this heavyweight fight. It's like, okay, I need to kind of 
beat him with speed around the edge and roll back inside, whatever. In in this high school video, it it's almost like he waits for somebody to make a mistake. Where it's like, oh, tackle just took a step outside. Guess what? I can just slip right inside him. Oh, he went inside. But he has the fluidity to react to whatever the tackle does. And so in these high school videos, he's kind of reacting instead of in this next level, he really needs to be more of an attacking type because um, that's just that's just how that position works. But the point is, like you see the physical tools, you see the fluidity, you see the smarts, and, and that ability to react, that comes in the counters, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm going to get him upfield. Oh, he overcommitted, bang, get him right back inside. And when you see those sorts of senses along with the athleticism and the fact that you just look at him, you're like, yep, that's where's the college football player on the field? Oh, yep, that's him right there. There he is. Doesn't even need to play, but you can just circle him. There's a... There's a lot to like. And then the hitting, all that sort of stuff. The number of forced fumbles is just kind of ridiculous. But um, Cam Beiser, all the way down there, like when you talk about needing a pass rush, it's no wonder that Colorado was going after him. And it's also no wonder that Chris Wilson goes and recruits a kid. And the kid's like, oh, you coach Chris Long? You want me to be your Chris Long? Yeah, sign me up. Edward Schultz mentioned him earlier, just a pure burner at receiver with good size already. You wonder if he could develop into being a, a, a kind of a jump ball threat. Um, that's at the very least, he can stretch defenses over the top. You can get the ball in his hands and expect him to, to use that speed to make some big plays. Um, but if he, you know, it's what listed six one one ninety five now. If that strength really comes through, that could really open some more things up for him. But again, another player that I'm really excited about, I mean, track star playing receiver, who doesn't like that? Talked about the tight ends. Those are gritty guys in the trenches. And then you got Ryan Staub, the corner, the quarterback. So who knows uh, what he'll provide, a little undersized. But isn't it kind of wild that what, what it comes down to at the end of the day is just like, well, is the quarterback good? Because the quarterback's good. Everything's going to work out. If not, it doesn't. But... At this point, yeah. Is this going to be the number 10 recruiting class in the country, number one class in the Pac-12? No. But it does seem like they're landing their targets, and that's a good thing. Like, what you don't want to see is that they're at two commitments right now, and you're like, oh, I mean, there's plenty of time, but they very clearly are not landing the guys who they're going after early. Um, I, uh, I think that this is a good group. We'll, we'll see how things pan out. You know, I do think that there's a good chance this is a big class. I think that that's the way they want to build this program is, is through recruiting. And I, th- I think this could be another 20, 23-man class with, uh, with hopefully some, some star players. And if you're looking for a couple names to, to watch in terms of the big dogs that they try to bring in, because, again, you, you can build a very deep and thorough class the the message boards are interested in who the big names are. Even if the big names at CU have basically never panned out. I mean, just like you run through the top recruits they've ever had. Number one, Daryl Scott. What happened with him? Nothing. Transferred out. Marcus Houston, transferred out. Ryan Miller, four years in the NFL. Hey, that that's a that was a good tackle for you're good to go. Um Russell Lovett. I I've never heard of him. Craig Oaks. Uh, he wound up going to Montana. Uh, Yuri Wright. I'm not sure if he was good here. I know that he wasn't like a big panning out type of guy. Um, Lynn Katoa. Quinn Sipniewski. Um, Gabe Neuheisel? I mean, how far down do you have to go to get like really good performance? Maybe one of those guys was like all just Neenheis. Gabe Neenheis is the name. There we go. John Major, I think, was around. 
um, you know, Jake Moretti, Nick Casa, P.T. Gates, Brian Daniels, Clinton Worth, Shaw Clayton, Bruce Givens, Maurice Greer. I mean, how? So again, that's why that's why we're hesitant with getting too excited about the recruiting rankings. But if you if you're looking for the big name guys who could come in and and change some stuff, draw a bunch of attention, keep Colorado in the top forty recruiting classes, whatever. You look at uh, like Jeremiah Hughes. I'm actually can't I can't remember who wrote this one. I mean, it was either it was either Justin Guerrero from Rivals or Adam Munster Tiger from Twenty Four Seven Sports. One of those two w- was on it. But uh, Jeremiah Hughes is uh, a cornerback from Bishop Gorman, who should probably wind up being pretty highly ranked. Uh, it sounds like Colorado is is in good shape with him, and by that, like they they have a chance at the very least. Um, and then the other one that stands out is Robert Lockhart, um, a little speedy receiver from Georgia, um, who could also be kind of that that fringe four star. Um, I'm gonna I'm actually gonna pull up both of their pages in 24/7 Sports and see what they have to say. Um, let me pause this real quick while I get over there. Okay, so Robert Lockhart again, five foot seven receiver from Georgia. Um, according to twenty four seven Sports, Steve Wiltfong, uh, he says that uh, it's down to Colorado, Maryland, and Jackson State. So those are those are the three who could wind up with him. Um, we'll see how that pans out. Um, I guess we could say twenty four seven has him as a as a four star. Composite has him as a three star, but that's kind of the fringe. Five foot seven. Um but speed. So there's there's one to look to. I don't think no, Wilt Fong didn't say what the date was. I guess he hasn't picked a date to decide. Um, but that's one of them. And then the the other is uh like I said, Jeremiah Hughes. Twenty four seven has his interest, is like warm interest as Arkansas, Colorado. LSU, Utah, Washington. So no idea how that will all pan out. Um, they have him as an 88, a three-star, but no composite yet. Um, yeah, so there's there's a couple names. We'll, we'll see, though. We'll see, though. I'm not the recruiting guy. Go to Adam for that stuff, or, or Justin, too. But, I mean, we're an hour and a half in. Probably about time to wrap this up. I got to leave for Boulder in a few hours. Um, I guess I'm out. I'll be back tomorrow. We'll be talking about the uh, the things that Chris Wilson and Mike Sanford have to say. First time, only time during spring camp, we're going to talk to those two. Uh, we'll get an update ahead of the spring game on Saturday. Hopefully, I'll see you guys out there. If not, make sure you tune in to our live after the spring game when we'll be talking about everything that happened. Uh, that's the plan for today. Appreciate you all for listening, and I will be back with more tomorrow.